Our readings this morning arise in this season of Easter to provide hope in desperate and confusing times. And one of the ways that our times are confusing for us today is that for the first time in any of our lives, um, competing stories are being told about what's most real and what's most fundamental about the world. And this is not just secularism. If it was secularism, I think we could all kind of deal with that because all of us in our whole lives have dealt with a kind of secularism. What we've never dealt with is a pluralistic society when it comes to religion. That's new for most of us. And I'm just not sure, I think we all feel it in kind of an intuitive way, but most of us don't have time to really think deeply about it. And this is one of those moments where this picture in the book of Revelation it gives us an idea of that which is really concrete, that which is really real, and where this whole story is gonna end. For the kingdom of God is the basic structure of reality. I know that's maybe a bit philosophical for 9.30 on a Sunday morning. But I just wanna invite you to just think about that with me for a minute. I mean, what is actually the basic structure of reality? And how would we know it? How would we measure it? How would, how would we engage with it? Like, is it the stock market? Is it unemployment numbers going up and down? Is it, you know, whether there's peace in your family right now or discord because one of your kids is in trouble? Or, you know, how would one know that which is really most real and therefore be able to provide some sort of antidote for the ever-increasing stress and anxiety and confusion and sort of desperation that's upon our times. Therefore, the role of not just this church, but any church, the role of any Christian community is to help us constantly hold before our minds the reality of this unseen reality of the kingdom of God. And to just remind ourselves repeatedly that this is what's really real. Because if you just got on your smartphone right now or your iPad and just click to your favorite news site, it was AP Wire or something, we as human beings today literally hear more bad news in a week than only a few generations ago, two or three years ago, maybe would have heard in their whole lifetime. But now everything that goes wrong in the world, whether it's rockets being fired in the Gaza or children dying in fires in South Carolina or the, uh, the huge fire they just had in Russia or that building collapsing in Bangladesh or chemical weapons being used in Syria, you go on and on and on, just open your newsfeed. And it's right before us day in and day out so that modern life is more full of hassles and deadlines and frustrations and external causes of stress than any human being has ever known. Whether it's major life changes or stresses at work or relationship difficulties or financial problems or being too busy or our children or our parents or something, there's always something going on. And then I saw this weekend kind of the six biggest you know, leading causes of internal stress. And I would have thought this would have been next to my picture in my yearbook or something. This, this is what causes internal stress. Inability to accept uncertainty, check. Unrealistic expectations, double check. Perfectionism, been there since I was in diapers. 
Pessimism, yeah, if things aren't going right, I can get pessimistic. Negative self-talk, I've had to work my whole life to defeat negative self-talk. So it's not just what we read on the news feeds, it's what's inside us as well, and that always leads to a fundamental decision, which of those things is actually most real? Which one can you rely on? It doesn't mean, as I've said before, that what's in our news feeds isn't real. Those people who died in that you know, implosion of that building in Bangladesh, those were real human beings making clothes that we all wear. That's really real. We're not saying that that's not real. What we're saying is, is there a way of fitting that into a bigger story? Or is that just it? You know, some sort of perverted forms of capitalism lead to human death and that's it. Or does that fit into some sort of bigger story? Well, America is super stressed out. Suicide has now become the number one injury-related way to die. It's now past car crashes as the number one injury-related way to die. One-third of our nation's employees suffer chronic debilitating stress. More than half of 18 to 33-year-olds experience so much stress that they can't sleep at night. 18 years old. So much stress that they can't sleep. Stress plays a major role in the nation's first and second biggest health killers, cancer and heart disease. And then, of course, there's relentless economic pressure and high unemployment and ever higher prices for food and gas and other essentials. So what the heck is going on? I mean, what, what this passage from Revelation that was meant to be read during Easter for an Easter people who are stuck in these 49, 50 days between Easter and Pentecost, and wondering about what was real in their world, we're meant to read these things to wonder what, in the, what on earth is going on with us. Why aren't all of our incredible scientific and technological innovations reducing stress and lightening our load? When I was studying business at Cal Poly Pomona in 1974, and we were then, you all, some of you are too young to even know what I'm talking about. Others of you my age will just laugh. We were programming computers with punch cards. You've probably never even seen a punch card. What were the languages like COBOL and I don't know, Fortran or something, you know? And I remember sitting in those classes and these professors getting all philosophical and wondering, wow, what's it gonna be like when computers allow us to do things so much faster that we have all this free time as human beings? This is what they were wondering. I was studying human resources, manage, human resources management, and that's what, they were, that's what they were thinking about at the time, that what's this gonna do to the human workforce? Well, I don't know where all the promise is gone, but I know that I'm not feeling reduced stress and a lightening of my load. So why doesn't the almost magical ability of the world's accumulated knowledge, thanks to the internet, make us more enlightened and happy? And this passage in Revelation comes to us as we look around for leadership that matches these challenges. Just think about that. Just, you know, I know we all love to hate our politicians, but think about trying to be a world leader today. Where are we gonna find leadership that matches these challenges? And so in that sense, we're kind of like John earlier in the book of Revelation where he looks around and you know, no one's seen that's worthy to take the scroll and, and undo its seals and, and take human history in his hands and execute on it on behalf of God. We're kind of like that. We look around wondering, where are we gonna find leadership that matches this? And this reading from Revelation this morning invites us to remember the end of the story. 
that this story was first told against the backdrop of gaudy Rome in all of its glory. But its glory was based in violence and exploitation. Rome was corrupt and harmful to its inhabitants and doomed to fade into history. And this passage from Revelation calls us to reject association with such powers. And that the churches in Revelation, like Smyrna, was under deep persecution. Pergamon was faltering under it. Laodicea was deceived and getting lukewarm about their connection to Christ. All of these churches had to actually struggle with this immense cultural pressure. I mean, Caesar's head was on their coins. The Roman flag was carried through town as the standard. And the politicians were all corrupt and in Rome's pocket. They were all sellouts. And so this story in Revelation is meant to give us hope via the end of the story. If you look at your passage, a new heaven and a new earth is coming. And the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And it says, and there was no longer any sea. Now that's odd except for that John's hearers would have known exactly what he meant, that the sea in, in Jewish history and in the way the Jews told themselves stories about God and reality, the sea was meant to be like a dark force that symbolized chaos and evil that threatened the plan of God. And that's why earlier in the book of Revelation, you read that the dragon and the beast are thrown into the lake of fire and there's no more than opposition to the lamb. And so John says, as I see the end of this story, I see this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. See that in your reading? God's dwelling place is now among the people, in the neighborhood. God's gonna make his home among them. And where there's been death, mourning, crying, or pain, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Tom Wright gives us, I think, a really key insight to what's happening here is if you stop to think about it, look at that sentence again. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is a deeply personal act of utter gentleness and kindness. And you know, I try to always say important things. I try not to waste your time with unimportant things. But like if we never agreed on anything again for the rest of our life together, but could agree on that this is a revelation of God's eternal character. It's who he actually is. He's the type of person in the face of human sin and human brokenness and the pain that we do to each other, that's who he is, just a gentle thumb. The creator God who spoke all this into existence, this is his eternal character. It's a revelation of who he is. And again, this isn't just kind of like theologically or philosophically or even personally important. It's important in the whole big story of what's going on today. Because increasingly, I mean, we've talked a bit about religious pluralism, but the other thing that's rising in our culture that we see that hurts our hearts and confuses us, I mean, and I mean that, I think it really hurts our hearts I mean, we don't mind it so much when, you know, somebody from another religion does something bad and, and people say, well, you know, that's an aspect of that religion that's really bad. But when we hear the new atheist saying this, the religion itself is gonna destroy humanity. That's what the most thoughtful new atheists are saying today, that if we don't stomp out religion, religion is going to destroy humanity. 
Because religion is the basic and essential source of evil and wrong and misuse of power. So when religions can't get their own way, they do horrible things in order to conscript people into their religion. Now you just contrast that against God's eternal character, his gentleness, kindness, amazing generosity, the space he gives us to be wrong. Judas was in his posse. Peter was amongst his first friends. James and John, who were completely misunderstood, misunderstanding Jesus, he made space for them. And the reason it's so important to say that this is God's eternal character is that it wasn't just his character and his loving creation, it was also his character when things went wrong. The fall, the flood, Israel going bad, his own people not getting him. He came to his own, those he created, and they didn't know him or understand him or accept him. And he gave humankind space because this is his eternal character. And that someday, when this is all said and done, a part of God's justice is not just gonna be putting evil people who are contrary to God in their place, but he'll be putting us in our place by these eternal thumbs, just wiping away every tear from every moment of pain. Well, this then leads us to Jesus's words in the, in the gospel reading about this kind of love that he was asking them to love one another with. And I just wanna suggest that this kind of love requires faith in this story that Revelation's telling. So just quickly to think of the scene in John 13. I mean, this is truly a sacred moment. I, you know, just picture this. Judas, you know, the text starts with, and when he had left, that's Judas. So Judas stands up and leaves. Picture this. They're sitting around the table. Judas gets up and he leaves. The door clicks behind him. And it's as if Jesus takes the remaining 11 and draws them closer to himself, like maybe a coach on a basketball floor or something. He draws them around him, telling them these new things and beginning with, I'm only with you for a short time longer. Well, who can live in this kind of confidence in God and in this kind of love one for another? Who can do it? Like who, who do we suppose might be capable of doing that? And I just want you to know it has something to do with what you believe your essential story is. Because in this chapter, John 13, it records a story where it says Jesus, knowing where he had come from and from whom he had come. So picture the eternal Trinity before there's even space and time. The text says Jesus, knowing where he'd come from and from whom he had come and knowing where he was going, knowing to the end of the story, he got up got a towel, washed his disciples' feet and said, see, I've set you an example. Now he says here, I don't have much time left with you, but there's this one thing I need you to know. In the post-resurrection time to come, in the confusion of where I went and who I really am, and are the Jews right that I was just another failed Messiah? Are the Romans right that I was just a mere criminal? Or am I right? I want you to know in the confusion that comes and, in, and when you're tempted to put each other down because somebody's not believing right or whatever, I just want you to know there's this sort of last command I give you and that is you love one another, that you care for one another and forgive one another in the fearful, confusing, stress-filled weeks that are come between then and Pentecost. So Jesus says, love one another in the same way that I loved you. 
And I just want you to note one thing here. At the very center of whatever it might mean to be a follower of Jesus, at the very core of what it might mean to be his disciple, is not thinking right thoughts about him. Jesus did not say, I'm about to go away and I really hope y'all hold on to an adequate theory of the atonement. Or I'm about to go away and I hope you all hang on to a really tightly philosophically argued position on the adequate, on the reliability of scripture. Now those things are all important. I love studying theology. I want to be as right as I possibly can be theologically. I want to help teach you for all of us to be as right as we can. I'm not down on any of that. In fact, I take it enormously serious. But that's not the heart of it. At the heart of it is a way of being in the world. How do you carry yourself in this world? That's what Jesus was after. A way of being, a manner of being, of carrying out one's life, one's walk in the world. What Jesus was most concerned about was not that James and John really didn't get what he was up to so much, but could you become the kind of people for whom this kind of love is natural and normative? That this is what's important, how one lives a new way of being in the world. So Jesus, and I just want to, this is what I'm gonna come in to us this morning. Jesus, knowing where he'd come from and, who, and from whom he'd come, and knowing the end of the story, he acted a certain way. I wonder if that's possible for us. Like in the real helter-skelter of 2013 Southern California, is this actually possible for us to actually fit our lives into that story that Jesus invites us into so that what was true of him could be true of his followers? So then just hear these last words if you wanna look at your um, passage in Revelation. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. I started this story and I'm gonna complete it. And what this tells us is that placing our life in this story is the basis for quiet, humble confidence. This is the basis for the security that's required to take our focus off ourselves and to be able to love others as Jesus loved us. So now in, in this moment of quiet, I want, I want to invite you to just put your stuff down and maybe you want to close your eyes or bow your heads or whatever you want to do. Just in this quiet moment, I want you to hear this again. These words are trustworthy and true. Each word dependable and accurate. And so this morning, I want to invite you to not pass by this vision lightly the way you would window shopping at a mall. Like, oh, you know, what a comfortable looking sofa, or oh, what a cool bike, and then move on. But I want you to linger before this vision John gives us and sit for a moment and take in all that John is showing you. And let this vision of the end of the story nourish your imagination for a new way of being in the world. That way, when it's time for us to stand up and walk out of this sacred space, we can do so strengthened in the knowledge that something new lies ahead.
and that even now, God and his sphere are very close by. So don't pass by this vision lightly. Take in the truth that in the same way that God created the earth out of nothing, that God is speaking over this troubled world. And in time, in his time, all evil will be banished. Never-ending hope will be revealed. All things will be made new, including our stress-ravaged bodies, our souls, our minds, our hearts, families, our neighborhoods, our cities, and our nations. Amen.